What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the THP Strength Podcast. Today, we're doing something interesting. We're actually live on Instagram right now, taking your questions, and we're basically going to do a little Q&A format. If you don't know who we are, my name is Isaiah Rivera. I'm a professional dunker, 48-inch vertical, and I'm also obsessed with jump training. been training athletes for two years now. John, if you want to introduce yourself... Yeah, my name is John Evans. I am, well, was previously formally trained as a track coach, have my undergraduate degree and master's degree in sports science, coached at Duke, worked at an Olympic training site for weightlifting, worked at Athletic Lab coaching weightlifting, CrossFit, track and field, pro women's soccer, sports performance, kind of everything, and been at Altus with track and field groups, Olympians. I think I said I coached at Duke. Maybe I'll say that again, but it's hard to keep <laughs> the list yeah. in line basically. And then I coached Isaiah. Now I coach pro dunkers and I specialize in helping people. Yeah. If you want to dunk and you want to get your body feeling good, whether it's your knees or your tendons or whatever it is, I can help you out. All right. This week's podcast brought to you by Legion supplements. One of the biggest questions we get asked is how can I improve recovery? One of the only ways to do this to give your body more of what it already needs Increasing bioavailability of these micronutrients can help you. In other words, it lets your body do what it's already trying to do during recovery, but better. Use the code THP at checkout if you decide to purchase some supplements. Secondly, we want to shout out Hawkins Dynamics. If you're looking for force plates to fact check us, go check them out. They have great leasing options. And lastly, if you want to get coached by both me and John Evans, go to THPStrength.com. Best training on the planet. So without further ado... Let's start some of these questions. I'm just, I'm just going to go from the bottom. From the, actually, I'm going to scroll all the way to the lot. top of this. I'm not going to touch my feed because I don't want my camera to fall over, my phone to fall over. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you can see all of them. Yeah. All right. We'll start with this. This is pretty basic. What are your top tips for two-leg jumpers? That's like let's a Steven Selle. Let's legs. give two tips each. <laughs> two tips each. All right. Go ahead. What are yours? Number one, specificity is king. If you want to get better at two foot jumping, you have to jump off two feet a lot, which is, yeah, I think that's the most important thing when it comes to it. Number two, I would say rate of force development, get strong and be able to apply that force very quickly. Those are my two tips. And you do that obviously by proper weight training and periodization. Yeah. I think mine would be one when you jump, take mental notes of what feels right and what feels wrong. And before your jumps, try to replicate what feels right. That's something big I've been doing recently. Jordan Kilgan and I actually have kind of DM'd about it a little bit. And Isaiah said visualization is like a huge thing for him. I definitely agree. That's made a huge difference for me. And the <clears throat> second one, that's, that's really big. I'd say the second one is film yourself and look at your technique and see when I felt this, what did I do? You know what I mean? And start to create mental notes of what you're trying to improve with your technique. And that'll help a lot too. Yeah. All right. This one's actually pretty good. What are the benefits of extensive running for jumpers? So I guess the first thing we should do is define what extensive running is. And then extensive from there, we can talk running, about yeah. how we apply it in our training. I use the term you'll hear extensive most commonly used by, I think Charlie Francis uses it. There's uh, James Smith, I think, is another sprint coach that uses it. Some yeah. of the just track and field, it's really common. And it's really just running at 70 to 80%. I don't know if some guys use the heart rate measures or if people use subjective scoring or if people use actual sprint speed. I use subjective scoring because it tends yeah. to be the most accurate or I guess the it achieves the goal most 
appropriately. Subjective scoring being you just see like I'm you trying feel. about seventy to eighty <laughs> percent like, yeah. of my top speed. And, and is there a specific distance that you're trying to run? Yeah. So usually when I prescribe them, I would just give ranges for it. Generally speaking, it could go anywhere from ten seconds to 10 second efforts to anywhere to, I would probably go upwards of 40, 45. You could go, probably wouldn't go past that. If I'm putting them in track and field programming and things like that, that's generally how I'll put them in. And it's just like fast running, but not super fast running. And yeah. it gives you a, it gets you out of breath and gets your heart rate up, but it's not so stressful that you're producing byproducts that would be associated with lactate or lactic acid or acidosis, you're not seeing those byproducts build up in the blood. Yeah. And so the fatigue is not nearly as, I guess, severe. And then centrally, it's not nearly as severe either. You're not going to get so out of breath that you're dying and you feel like you never want to do the workout again. Yeah. So one of the biggest things is it addresses like metabolically your respiratory endurance really well, but it's also specific to elastic contact. You're getting running you might see three to sprinting six times body weight i think on a single leg in 80 milliseconds yeah tempo running i mean your contact times are still really short and it's still running so you get the benefit of building fluidity you get the benefit of building stiffness in basically every single joint just being able to feel upright running appropriately and then being able to dial up the effort and still be fluid and sequenced and synchronized in your running, your upright running. And that's one of the biggest benefits. But as far as like jumping, as it applies to jumping, you get great recovery outcomes. You get great body composition outcomes. You get great workload or work capacity outcomes. So that's going to let you train more in the future. And in general, just build a level of perseverance too. Centrally, yeah. you're building that into, and then tendon stiffness. That's probably the biggest one too. RFD, there's still a level of RFD with tempo running. Yeah. Like it reminds it's still me pretty a lot high of RFD. The, <laughs> it reminds me a lot of what the benefits, like the secondary bef benefits of our warmups are like yeah. too. Yeah. It is a more intense way of pushing those adaptations yeah. forwards. And I think there's a very common misconception that people that are doing jump training should stay away from running. Like I know when I first started doing jump training, it was like cardio is the devil and you should stay away from it completely. It's but not, I mean, you should coupled, stay away from but, it when you're jumping high. <laughs> yeah. But I coupled, I put running like as the umbrella for all types of running. Like I didn't take into account that there can be a five minute jog, for example, can be a good warm up, and it's not going to kill your vertical. Something like extensive tempo running like that can be very beneficial for your jumping as well. Now, I also want to talk about what What about if someone's like basketball player, for example, they're in the middle of their basketball season. What would you do for them? Because like basketball coaches all over the place give a lot of conditioning after practice. I know Daniel Back put this in his story up. I shared it. And it was saying that basically coaches need to get away from that mentality of making practice hard by making conditioning hard as shit and running all the athletes to death. Is there a place for extensive running in season? I think when I've played basketball, just that I didn't play collegiately or anything like that. I can't really speak to that. I've played with guys that have played in college and kind of talked to them about the intensities and we've talked to Zeus. Yeah. And so we have a decent framework for what it looks like. And just watching the games, you can get pretty good idea and having played other sports. So like subjectively in my experience, yeah, there's a certain level of fitness that you have to have, but it's not even close to what you're going to see from elite track and field athletes. It's not a 
predictor unless you're just a fat blob. It's not a predictor of your performance in the sport, in my opinion. Your skill level and how you're built and your ability to score and things like that. Usually you're not going to see cardiorespiratory fitness as an overall predictor of wins and losses. You don't see, you don't see distance runners winning basketball games. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, there's a place for it. If you're a fat kid who can't run a lot and can't make it up and down the court and is having a hard time getting back on defense. The first thing you should probably address is is your your body comp, like your body comp. And then that'll probably make you better, better, like fitter without doing anything other than just taking off 20, a 20 pound weight vest or 15 pound weight vest. And then on top of that, if you're, if you are maybe in this position where for whatever reason, your team just keeps losing in the last couple minutes and skills, not, you know, it's, it's like icing on the cake. If it's something that you are watching your team just suck at and you're like, we're losing here. First off, is it that your guys are actually really fit, but you're just killing them in practice or is it that they're not fit? And so that's kind of a hard thing to answer unless you have heart rate data and you have GPS yeah. data, but yeah, just watch your players. Does it look like they're not moving? <laughs> they're, they're not moving well. They're not getting yeah. back on defense. And what did you do prior to the game? If you blew them out the day before the game and they suck the day of the game, whose fault is that? As a coach, yeah. that's your fault. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I would look at it. And it doesn't All take right. more than 24 to 48 hours to bounce back from aerobic stimuli. Yeah. Okay. This one is best strength exercises for one leg jumpers. This is a good question. <clears throat> I think some people have looked at my Instagram and been like, that must be the keys to one foot jumping. And what I will say is I'm pretty strong for just in general, I'm pretty strong, especially in the specific movements. If you were to put me on a single leg quarter squat or a single leg eighth squat, I can do anywhere from 450 to I posted six. Have I posted, what did I do? 550 or something like that on an eighth? I don't know what it was. There was, I think I it was like 500. I think it was like low 500. Yeah. No, you, I, were you well above 500 pounds on the, I don't level? know. I know I've lifted the bar off the rack on I an know it ISO. was around 500. If you, I've done a single leg ISO press and lifted off the rack 600 pounds. Like I've pushed 600 pounds off the rack on a single yeah. leg. So did your bank I, get blown out? <laughs> <laughs> felt like it. No, I, I'm just saying in general though, it's like most people are probably <laughs> capable of doing similar things that are better athletes. Obviously they just won't do that because it's high risk, especially for PFP. You're at a high pressure joint angle, pushing with more force than any other position you can push. in. it's like a recipe for getting chondromalacia. Yeah. And I learned that very quickly and I've only done it a couple of times since, but just in general, the best strength exercises are just the traditional ones getting my audio cut out there. Cause my battery's dying or the video on the Instagram. But if you just in general, the the traditional ones are the best ones, right? Get strong. That's really what it comes down to is get strong, get your squat up, get your hip thrust up, get your RDL up. And then as you get to a point in your career where you've topped those out over 10, 15 years, then maybe you can start looking at some more specific stimuli. Like maybe you want to do rhythm quarter squats. Maybe you want to do single leg eighth squats or quarter squats. And, and (laughs) I probably wouldn't do them after my experience. I probably wouldn't prescribe them because it's just not worth it. But I don't think strength exercises in general are the best exercises for one foot jumpers for staying healthy. hundred percent more than anything else. I would say strength work for a one foot jumpers program is to keep them very healthy, but jumping off one foot and doing a lot of plyos in my opinion is going to be more effective. So you have to have both because you can't handle the plyo volume without the strength work. And a lot of people don't realize that, but you have to have the strength work in there. Otherwise you can't jump frequently without pulling your hamstring. 
yeah. or your calf or cramping or pulling or your quad getting hurt or your knees getting hurt. Like the strength work plays a very integral role in improving your ability to apply force faster and stay healthy enough to actualize it. Yeah. Cause would you, cause, and if you guys haven't listened to our, I believe it was the plyometrics part one and two podcasts, John goes heavily into plyometrics and on there, you can really see how important they are for one foot jumping trait that a lot of the great one foot jumpers, I wouldn't even say a lot is every great one foot jumper has really stiff tendons and they would do extremely well in plyometric exercises. So I would say that's the most important thing you can do for one foot jumping. It's the most specific thing you can do aside from one foot, one foot jumping itself. But like John said, like if you're only doing plyos, you're just going to end up screwing yourself over in the long run because there is such a thing as the tendon being so stiff that it pulls on the muscle and the muscle is just going to fucking rip <laughs> when it's not strong enough. Yeah, there's truth to that for sure. And there's just a lot of Azure and, and just in general, like you still have to be strong to be elastic. I think it, it's both like just getting strong, getting your muscles strong is with one foot jumping is really the goal, right? Get really strong. And then yeah. you're not necessarily trying, in my opinion, always to develop RFD in the weight room. Like you can do activities to develop RFD in the weight room, but in terms of degrees of separation, they're not going to be as specific as just going out and jumping. Like early on, you might see good progress from just getting your squat up and getting your cleanup and things like that. But there is a lot more to one foot jumping than that. And you just have to be very of how you're programming things. Like I put a lot of strength work in one foot jumpers programming because I know that it's crucial. It's a crucial thing. Yeah. And I, but I also don't like you might for dunkers, especially plyos do not, are not necessarily like for high jump. I think it's even more important, but like for dunking, I wouldn't even say plyos are as important as just dunking. Like dunking yeah. is at the end of the day, going to be the most important thing for you to do as a one foot jumper is feeling out one foot jumping and learning the coordination, learning the timing, learning what certain things feel like. That's yeah. where you make a lot of progress off one foot. So I don't know. I could go in on that, but I'm not going to yeah, take yeah. that one any further. Yeah. I mean like plyometrics, a lot of dunkers I've never even done like plyometrics. Like I don't, we haven't even, as far as my training, like we still haven't really tapped into plyometrics. No, I mean, all, really. it's just like, like for you, I think now it, it's look, we could put this in, but you're not going to be able to dunk and yeah. dunking is really important for you. And honestly, you already have the RFD. The RFD is not the issue. Usually it's like getting in position. Now I yeah. think you have the capacity to hit 50 inches on your best day. I honestly believe that it's just going to be you being confident enough to go out and do it and feel it out. Cause you've never been there before. That confidence isn't quite there. So like, you're yeah. going to have to it's probably just going to have to happen organically. You know what I mean? Where you're just like, I'm just going to get this. You're not thinking about anything. It's just going to happen. And that's the result of you, everything lining up for you to do it. But I, I don't think there's any question that you could yeah. hit 50 inches without plyos, honestly. Also, I need to grab my charger real quick. So go, what's the next question? <laughs> All right. It's for my phone. I need to grab it for my phone. Oh, what are some technique drills for getting the ease bay down consistently? Oh, we just talked about this, Isaiah. Yeah. Go ahead and talk about that while I grab my charger. <laughs> All right. So... Some of the best drills that you can do for specifically an East Bay dunk, one I would recommend low rimming. That is going to be the number one thing for any dunk that you ever want to hit. Low rimming is always going to be the answer. I would recommend going on a height where you can hit the dunk about two to three. 
out of 10 tries, keep working that height until you can get it to around nine out of 10 on your consistency. Then you're going to move up the height and you're just going to work your way up doing that. So when you move up the height, obviously your consistency is going to go down, work that height until you're consistent nine out of 10 times and just keep going up and up. So that's going to be the number one thing you can do. Do you think that's what I should be doing? Do you think I should be loan rimming more? Yeah. hundred percent. Why didn't you tell me that? A <laughs> hundred million thousand percent. <laughs> Why does that never come out of your mouth? <laughs> I, I don't know how willing you are to low room. I don't, wouldn't like it. I would do it if you told me. If you were like, I don't, first off, I don't know why you haven't ever told me to low rim, but I think that it's cause it's cause I don't know how, if you are willing to do it or not. Cause like, I wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> like, it's something if you want to, if you strictly just want to, cause take me for example, I never feel like low rimming. There's I'd rather dunk on 10 feet and it's more satisfying to dunk on 10 feet. Yeah. Even if I'm trying to hit a new dunk, let's say what's weird though, is my East Bay technique did not get better low rimming. It got better on 10 feet, trying it on 10 feet. And that's why I yeah. think I'm a little bit hesitant. And like, same thing with my windmill technique, like trying windmills on low rims where I could hit it two out of three times has not helped my windmill technique. And yeah. that I think is my biggest reservation with it. It's cause like, if I do happen to get my technique right on 10 feet or nine, 10, yeah. then I'm going to hit it. You know what I mean? Well, and maybe it's, I just didn't give it enough tries because it gets messed up. <laughs> low rimming. The only thing is if you're at a point where you're able to get, if you're close, like genuinely close, like if you're back rimming dunks, then you should try him on on that height. East Bay, I think for you, ideal, like you you would be practicing on like nine six to nine eight. Like that would be like a perfect height for you to East Bay. When I say low rim, I don't unless you're like at a very low level. I never mean low rim on fucking eight feet, eight and a half feet. Like it should be on a height close to ten feet, but where you can like still make it, so you can keep practicing technique. What's weird is my consistency is bad enough where even on nine six I would still miss a ton. Even if you put it down to nine foot, I would still like miss a ton. And then like when yeah. I did hit it, I'd be like it would still be like two out of three times. So it would take me a long time on nine foot to get the consistency where like I'm making it five out of six or five out of ten times or six out of ten times. And then you're like, okay, we'll go up two inches or whatever, and then it's great. Now I have to like. I guess at that point, maybe I would just be mad consistent on nine two. I don't know. I just feel, and Jordan said this, he's like, the rim is too low. Then the technique doesn't transfer. Like yeah, it actually doesn't exactly. really carry over. And I think that's my biggest reservation with it is like on nine, I guess you're right. Like nine, six or nine, eight is probably where I need to low rim to. Yeah. Cause before I hit my first East Bay, like I would, the month before that I was having a lot of nine, six sessions like a lot of nine, six sessions. And then over the co course of two, three months, my vert shot up enough that I could try those dunks on 10 feet. And then that's, and then I just started like knocking them out like one by one, but nine, six. And I would also dunk on nine, eight, like the outdoor rim that I used to have. That was nine, eight. I probably spent more time on nine, six to nine, eight than like any rim height. Like back when I was like my first year and a half of dunking. So yeah, I think that's super, super useful. So you're telling me a lot of, how many sessions in a row do you think it would take me on nine, six before you'd be like, all right, to go back to nine, 10. <laughs> I would probably, if you're dunking twice a week, I would give it it's probably like two to three right weeks. Two, I would give weeks. it two to three weeks on nine, six. Okay. So let yeah. me ask you this. If I had it on nine, 10 in those two to three weeks doing what I'm currently doing right now, do you think that I could hit it on nine, 10 one time <laughs> after three weeks? Just doing what I'm doing right now for three weeks. Do you think I'll hit it eventually on nine ten? I mean, it's possible. Like get lucky. But I think the faster route to it, 
I think the fastest route would be two weeks of nine six and then go back to nine ten. I feel like I'm always hesitant with it because I never feel like it transfers. Honestly, like straight up, I never feel like it transfers that well for me. I think that's honestly why I always get like re- why I always have reservations with it. I can't. I don't try as hard on low rimming, and then I don't. It just it's not close enough to. Maybe if I went on ten, tried it on nine ten a couple times or whatever, and then I lower it down to nine six. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you know how I used to do it. I would my warm up would be low rim, so like my hoop was adjustable. I would start on eight feet and I was. East Bay, boom, and then eight six East Bay, nine feet East Bay, nine six East Bay, ten feet, and then then attempt it there. So that's how all my sessions used to be. I would use it as a warm up, and that would get my hands right. What's weird is I think off two that would work, but off one I need more speed to get up. So like for me to windmill, I I need to be in the air a certain amount of time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So like I have to run fast enough, and when I would low rim like a windmill. I would actually pull my hamstring because I was warming up with it. You know what I mean? And like in reality, I had to be warm, really warm to even try that dunk at all because of the prerequisites for yeah. the rhythm, the rhythm with yeah. it and stuff. Have you tried East Bay's on 9.6? I think that's what I was doing the other day, but I was getting close enough where I was like, look, I know I can make this on 9.6. I'd rather just go to 9.10 because I'm jumping high enough to make it. Like when I make this Let's do, on so 9.6. You even, so you technically haven't even done it properly negative not recently not recently i've done it before if you haven't tried it you (laughs) haven't implemented it properly all right all right i'll take listen i'll do what you say dunk overlord okay for for (laughs) the next two to three weeks i will only dunk on nine six and i will windmill wait wait, what are the ones you want me to do you want me to win i just want you to ease bay windmill i think you should keep trying it on nine nine ten ten feet because i can do it on nine six like every time it just feels like i'm gonna pull my hamstring (laughs) yeah like windmill Cause you're at a point where you're back rimming it. East Bay, I would East Bay on nine six. I would get to the point where you're consistently East Baying on nine six. Like it's like a walk in the fucking park. You you can close your eyes and you've done it so many times that you can still hit it. All right. So with the the windmill, I still like on nine ten. I hit it once out of probably fifteen tries yesterday on nine ten. And then on yeah, it was I like what's that? that? I would keep drilling it out on nine ten. On nine ten. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause it feels like I need to be warm. I need to be really warm to do that dunk off the dribble. Cause I run so much faster off the dribble to hit that dunk off the dribble. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't like, it's just different when I go off the dribble, I need a certain takeoff style to do it, but yeah. I'm also going to try what you said and crossing my free leg over. Really? It's what I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> For those of you so, that don't know, Isaiah and I had, go ahead. Why don't you just tell them what the discussion was? Yeah. So I was, so John, when he windmills, he he does a side windmill. So instead of going straight back and windmilling, he'll pump it up and then bring it to the side. And the reason he does that is because he's basically can be more balanced in the air and it allows him to jump better because of the positions that he's in. He, because turning your shoulder changes your takeoff and like your motion in the air. I was, it was actually like I was afraid because I couldn't land. If yeah. I were to go straight back, I couldn't land safely because when you jump off one foot for a windmill, what will happen if you get a, like a correct windmill where the ball comes back right back behind you is that you have to rotate your shoulder axis so that instead of like your shoulders being square to the rim, you're sideways to the rim. You know what I mean? Like your left shoulder is facing the rim and you'll see this on most anyone that does any windmill where the hand comes straight back behind them because you're giving the humerus more range of motion to finish, to do like a full extension windmill. So like, when you do that, there's a writing reflex that happens in the air. And this happens in high jump all the time. But if you're twisting your shoulder, like my left shoulder towards the rim, 
then my pelvis has to rotate in opposition to that because for every action, even if you're in the air, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So for me to do that fast, I need to rotate my hips. And then what will happen is my free leg will cross over my takeoff leg and then untwist before I land. So where I was scared was if I twist, <laughs> I can't land. I don't know how to reposition my body to land to be able to do that. And then I had to watch. He showed me, I told him that was probably what I would have to do. And then he's like, no, nah, let me find someone. And then we went to Zach Levine and I was like, look, he's doing exactly what I said prior to me showing you. And then <laughs> now I think now I actually visualize myself doing it. Like I've gone through the mental rehearsal of it. And I'm like, yeah, I could do this. I definitely can do this. Throw at least the arm act. Like I can, I don't know if I'll make it like finish the dunk. Cause I might lose the ball, but I can definitely take off that way and do the arm and leg action. It might be way easier. Yeah. I think, I don't know. We're, we're, I've never done it. So I guess we're going to find out. I want to go yeah. try it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And then just to go over the question before. So that's the number one thing I would recommend for East Bay's. And then the second drill I would recommend would be lower the rim to a height you can practice without having to jump and just practice East Bay's over and over that way. Issue with that is it has to replicate the speed and the technique that you see in a regular jump, which is really difficult for people to do if they're not very experienced with dunking. And then the last thing is I would recommend wall drills. So literally you stand to a wall, like in the same direction that the wall is at. You'd bounce the ball in front of you, catch it, and then put it between your legs as fast as you can. And then imagine like the wall is the rim. And then just slam the ball against the wall, keeping your hands straight, handcuffed on the finish. So those are the, like the top three drills that I would recommend as far as getting to finish in East Bay. That was, <laughs> that was a long one. That was a long one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we should answer. We're at 27 minutes. Maybe we'll answer one more question real quick. Yeah. We'll, we'll answer it in, in five minutes or less. Do <laughs> you find a good one? Oh, this is a, a pretty interesting one. How do you guys produce such good results but use the same lifts as other programs? That's a That's a really good question. So... I think it's funny because if you were to just see one day of training, you'd be like, I do this stuff. How come I'm not getting better? <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing of like, how come you don't look like Kai Green, but you're doing bench press bicep curls and like calf raises. Like, why don't you look like him? You'd be like, well, he's on steroids and genetics and like all other stuff. But yeah, there's some truth to that. But <laughs> so maybe that's not a perfect analogy. But in our case, what is happening is one, you have our instruction. So not every power clean is created equally. Not every squat is created equally. And within that, every individual's variability within that movement is going to cause a different adaptation. And then depending on how that athlete jumps, that squat is also going to have a different carryover and the power clean is going to have a different carryover and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what also makes our, our program so effective, like everyone can have sprinting in their program, but are you, whenever you have days off or whenever you have logistic like problems logistically, are, are you adjusting appropriately? Are you making the changes that need to be made? That's, a, that's another big difference. And then I would say progression wise, our progressions are incredibly robust, time-tested evidence-based over not just in research, but also just hundreds of years in terms of squat progressions for weightlifters and powerlifters and things like that. And then you also have the progressions they would do, but also blending that in with elastic work, plyo work. Like it's not just the ingredients. Anyone can take a tomato and some peppers and some beans and slosh them together in chili and with no attention to how much of those ingredients they're putting them in at what temperature, with what time, with what type of chicken they're putting in with those details, what spices you're putting in there. Those things matter. It, it, you can't just 
lump a, to- a full tomato in there and lump a full pepper in there and lump a big chunk of chicken breast with no attention to how they're cut up and how they're and what order they're put in and whether you sauteed the onions first or whatever else like how you put those elements in is more important than them just being in your program and oftentimes people don't realize that and then secondly you don't eat chili every day of your life so if you don't have if you're just trying the same things over and over again but with you don't have variability even if you do progress it and you don't but you don't have the correct variation you don't have the correct progression from month to month or even year to year if you're that dedicated like in isaiah's case then you're not going to make progress long term you we have tons of guys that hop off the programming and then they don't get better they just stay at the same exact freaking level for months and months and it's easier to to do that it's easier to just hop off the program and think you know what you're doing and then you don't make progress right like yeah I think that's pretty common. Someone will do the training for a month to try to just see what it is. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to train myself now with this information, but there's so much variability and so many different factors that like, like your program that you're seeing is individualized to you, but what you don't see is there's freaking a hundred other variations of things that are like trying to achieve the same goal. You're seeing... What oftentimes, and especially this is happening recently, guys are like, hey, can you write like a description of why I'm doing what I'm doing? And I'm like, do you realize how much more time it's going to take me to write X number of programs if every single time I have to go through and explain why each element is in there? And I've started to do it for some guys and I've started to do it for certain weeks of programming and things like that I might use and adjust later on. But like, I can't, there's so much complexity in terms of, where you're at now and where you're going that for me to write out why everything is in there, it takes me 20 to 30 minutes just to do that. And so you might see your plan and be like, Oh, well, it's just quarter work or, Oh, it's just this. It's not like there's a very specific progression within each element that I've put in there and certain variations I'm planning on using in the future that are not textbook. They're not textbook. It's something that might be totally contingent on 10 different variables that I thought about for you that, I don't explain all the time. Like for Isaiah, I do it sometimes, but I get frustrated because people don't always realize that. And it's hard for me to explain and articulate. Like for Isaiah right now, I'm taking into consideration his quad tendon and he's not doing deep squats. And people might be like, oh, I need half squats in my program because Isaiah is doing half squats. Did you know Isaiah is doing half squats in his program right now because his back bothers him. And so that's why he's doing half squats. And that sometimes he fluctuates between front squat and back squat because his quad responds better to back squat but his back doesn't. And sometimes he needs the front squat in (laughs) conjunction with that. And that sometimes he doesn't wear weightlifting shoes because the weightlifting shoes put him into a different position that loads his quad appropriately. And so sometimes he doesn't wear weightlifting shoes because of that. And so I take it out in his programming and I have RDLs and Nordics in there sometimes because I'm trying to achieve this stimulus with RDLs in a fully lengthened position. And I'm trying to achieve this stimulus with a hamstring curl. I remember remember (laughs) last year when I was doing technically this is two years ago now which is weird to say because it's 2019 yeah but when i was doing bottoms up squats for that month or two and it became a thing that was like we were being associated with like bottoms up squats because i was doing them and i was putting it in my youtube videos because i feel like every program somebody's oh that exercises this program or that exercises this program but the reason i and bottoms up squats looks weird like it like it pops like, out oh and that's it, it looks jump specific that's dunk specific yeah <laughs> like, but the only reason i was doing bottoms up squats is because because i was having issues with my quad tendon doing a regular squat so i just had to do bottoms up squats but then people like were like oh like 
I remember people would sign up for the training and then like we would write their training and they have like regular squats and stuff like that. And they'd be like, why am I not doing bottoms up squats like in your videos? <laughs> and I was like, because that's individualized to me. Like, well, if, You're not signing up for you, THP to do the same training I'm doing. You're doing the the training that's best for you. What's going to make you jump there, the highest. There's like the variations between one person's program and another are important. The specifics that I put in your program are important. It's why yeah. I don't have a set progression. It's why I don't have cookie cutter programs. I don't have cookie cutter programs because of that reason exactly, because you're literally just ignoring individuality. You're ignoring specificity and you're ignoring the alterations that happen in someone's day-to-day -day life that stop them from training appropriately. And you would not believe almost every single one of our athletes have some sort of condition or something that is like, or multiple yeah. that are conflicting with each other that cause us to make multiple alterations to their programming to get the result that they need for themselves. Like it might be shin splints plus back pain, or it might be back pain plus knee pain. And if you don't, or it might be that they don't have a weight room and they have back pain, knee pain, and it's PFP. Like all of those considerations combined, you're dealing with a cocktail of issues that will automatically disqualify most any program from being effective. Maybe the athlete doesn't know that, but it will disqualify most any program from being effective if they don't have those considerations taken into account. And then adjustments made in their programming and that's common that's not a no that we go through hundreds of messages every day yeah. where we're making those adjustments on like, i know i know when i was younger like there was no program that i could do because of my knee pain like i would try to do for example vertical jump bible i remember i looked it up and then like i tried depth my first and only day ever trying depth jumps bro it felt like my Achilles like just popped yeah Cause, like i had really bad Achilles tendinopathy and it just aggravated the shit out of it and then I was like, oh, can't do this training. Then another program I tried, I won't say the name, but it had as a pistol, like box pistols. And like you like jump and come back. Like I couldn't do that shit because of my knee. So there's a lot of programs that are very hard to do because of considerations yeah. that are individual. Even just like, even just a pistol squat. Some people can't, I can't do a pistol squat. <laughs> like I, I can't, my hips are messed up. I can't do a pistol squat. That's just my hip dysplasia and my hip anatomy and this whatever, but there are other things I can do. I can still half squat. I can still box half squat. I can still with PFP and some of the other considerations, like I'll do bottoms up box. I'll do bottoms up box squats, like, or pulsing box squats or whatever, because I know that's like the appropriate stimulus because I'm avoiding the end range of a quarter squat, which is a high pressure, high force situation. I'm avoiding a deep squat because of my hips and the PFP. So I don't have to go into that range, but I can still get strong in a very specific range of motion for jumping. So like yeah. my PFP can adapt and I know I'm going to do that two or three days. Like those considerations you can't have made for you unless you have someone there to do it for you. Right. Or like, yeah. so you have someone guiding you through that process. If you have a question, if someone says, well, I can't squat. I'm like, use the leg press because you have back pain. There you go. Everyone like, I thought I can't use the leg press. You can use the leg press. You can use machines. <laughs> like, No yeah. one said you, you just cause someone said you couldn't doesn't mean they were. And so I think those are just some changes that I think Isaiah and I generally make on a day-to-day -day basis that lead the end up making the program a lot more effective for the people that are on it and understand what it takes to actually progress. Yeah. All right. I think that covers everything. I think I see Travis and, and CJ and Avenue's in here. We got THP game in here right now, <laughs> but I think that's pretty good. Uh, this podcast will probably go up tomorrow. Other than that, guys, that's pretty much it. If you are listening to this on Apple or Spotify, please give us a five-star rating. If you're listening to this on YouTube, like, 
comment, subscribe to John's channel. John's really good about getting back to the comments for the first 24 hours after it's posted. So if you're going to ask any questions or leave any comments, do it under this video. As soon as it's up, he will answer your questions and we'll catch you guys in the next episode of the THP strength podcast. Peace. Peace out.